Hello, hello, and welcome to Edinburgh Entrepreneur's official podcast, a space for all ideas entrepreneurial. My name is Harry, and I'm the current vice president of the society. We welcome voices at all stages of their careers from all over the globe to offer you an international perspective of the entrepreneurial world. We will be welcoming Hector Forward, the founder and CEO of Comtura, a computer software company automating Salesforce data entry after every call, putting the customer's voice back into your CRM. Hector has also founded a failed startup, Hoist, an online system which utilizes keywords that are synced with your cloud storage and any predefined URLs to help users never copy and paste again. In his spare time, he invests as an angel in a variety of technology and finance corporations, such as TrainU, Plata, and Go Certify. Thank you very much, Hector, for joining us today. Uh, first, could we just get a quick introduction of yourself and your career so far? Yeah, sure. Um, so nice to meet you all. Uh, I'm Hector. Um, I am the CEO and founder of Comptura, which is a platform to automate data entry into CRMs. Uh, what that basically means is we fill in um, information after a sales call. Uh, why am I working on this and, and my kind of career that's led me up to this point? Uh, so I originally started my career selling perfume in Selfridges and Harrods, so very humble beginnings. Uh, I'm one of the rare people that will say I always wanted to go into sales. I've just always quite enjoyed it, just chatting to people. Um, then from there, I worked at one company called Feastit, where I learned my initial kind of skill set as a salesperson, um, primarily speaking with uh, events planners. And then I, I basically actually got poached by a startup in a co-working space uh, and then got really lucky and joined a company called Cognizant. Went from a team of uh, six to 150 in about three years, zero to nearly 50 million ARR in that time. Had the opportunity to open our US office, and become head of sales there. Uh, then I basically got bit by the, the entrepreneurial bug. Um, joined one, tried joining uh my friend to do a startup called Hoist, which unfortunately failed. And then from there, um, found two new co-founders and uh, that leads me to Comptura, where we are today. Perfect, thank you very much for that. Jumping into that first uh, startup you founded, Hoist, can mm -hmm. you just give us some insight on that and what happened there and why you think this startup failed and what you really learned from that failure that you're bringing to Comptura today? Yeah, sure. So I, th I think it's worth noting that um, like a couple of industry stats, right? So in the UK in uh, about 2017, um, only 89% of the startups founded in that year managed to survive. Uh, the next year, only 57% survived. And it basically gets progressively worse year by year. Um, the, the famous unicorns are like Airbnb, less than 3% of startups ever reach that level of success. And every uh, action and step you take, particularly in the early days, is just about survival. Um, that's because you have limited resources, right? You only have so much money in your bank account. You've only got so much time you're able to dedicate. And eventually people kind of get burnt out. Um, with Hoist, I, I think that there are kind of three reasons that it um, failed, in my opinion. The first is... I didn't spend enough time scoping out my co-founders. Um, even though they were my friends at the time, um, I mean, sorry, we still are friends, but um, your, your personal relationships are very different from your business relationships and your motivations at that point. 
and um, alignment and where someone is in their life is can be very very different so for example our CTO at the time um, had just got married uh, just bought a new house he's paying a mortgage um, he had a part-time job uh, at another company um, and I didn't know at the time but his wife was pressuring him to have a baby and she was like you need to uh you know do something that makes money um so he he had to leave after a while because he wanted to support a new family something i easily could have avoided if i'd spent the time investigating the same on the other side where um the uh, coo at the time his dad had started a startup at the same time and had basically pressured him in into leaving and so again something that i could have spent more time um, scoping out and understanding what was going on in the surroundings. One of the other things that um, really held us back was we didn't do enough market research. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I could possibly give you is spend £15 on a book called The Mum Test by Robert Fitzpatrick. It's probably come up um, in some of your uh, resources, if not. It basically teaches you how to validate and conduct user interviews without asking leading questions, which is a primary reason startups fail because you're directing people to, into having a problem and them not bringing it up themselves. So um, you don't know if it's real or not. And you can invest a ton of time and energy and, and money like we did into fixing this problem that was kind of there, kind of not. Um, but it wasn't so burning that people would, uh, such a burning problem that people would take action and actually um, convert from a user into a, a paying customer. Um, also the volume. We did 10 to 20 user interviews should have done 50 plus definitely um the second thing uh, sorry the final thing was um product market fit which is the you know um the main one that everyone's looking to get i mean we're still working on this at the moment is while the idea was neat and useful um we ha we were looking at our competitors and we solved five percent of a problem really really well but they already had the problem kind of solved by 95%. And so again, there wasn't enough of a need for them to convert. And again, that could have probably been scoped out by, um, by user interviews. And so those three things, so uh, market research, not enough time spent with co-founders and then product market fit, the three reasons I think that it, um, that it died. Jumping into the sort of product market fit of that uh, mm -hmm. issue, what actually was the product? What were you offering? Sure. So um, we were assigning keywords to uh, files or links that people use regularly. Um, so if you've ever used Grammarly, where if, if you write a typing error, it will highlight and offer a correction. So if you were to write something like, um, here is my calendar, it would highlight in the email and then automatically embed your Calendly link or whatever um, one you're using. Likewise, or like, here is our price index, and it would pull it out of your Google Drive and automatically embed it into the email. So a productivity platform um, to save time. Perfect. And jumping really back to where you really sort of started once you left university, how did you get the right kind of skills to jump into entrepreneurship? You mentioned you worked at Harrods. What age was that? Was that during university, before university? Or um, So that was actually my first job after uh um after university and i i'd actually was studying biomed because i thought i wanted to be a doctor um, and then they changed the junior doctor laws about how much you could earn um and then i, I actually left because i was like i'm gonna join the working world because i don't want to be a doctor anymore um <laughs> and then uh, and then moved to harrods and the, the thing about um working in an environment like that actually was even um even something as 
uh, kind of consumer facing as uh, selling perfume and kind of interacting with the general public, uh, you actually build a lot of confidence doing it um, because you're, you're literally standing there trying to um, spray perfume and um, it smells awful after a while because everyone else is doing it around you. But um, you eventually have to, someone will come over and say like, oh, you know, what exactly are you selling? Or what is the story behind this brand? And you have to be able to recite, um, you know, mine is Alexander McQueen. So I know a lot about um, Flowers of the Night, for example. Um, and those kinds of silly things where you go through these training days actually build you up as um, from, from day one. And then from there, also actually just working as a, as a team, like, you know, pep talks in the morning, those kinds of things and feeling part of a, a belonging is important for sure. Um, and sort of jumping sort of further on into your journey about sort of getting pinched by Cognizant, how did that occur? So I was working in a, in a co-working space called uh, Work.Life of uh, Tanner Street. And one of the great things about co-working spaces, um, it's a little bit different now because the pandemic and, and, and the WeWorks, et cetera, are, are probably about 30 or 40% capacity of what they usually are. Um, they offer a lot of events, free events. And we used to have a number of students turn up as well. And I'd recommend that you look into them because you can meet some really interesting people, whether that be if you're looking for a mentor, finding work experience, um, or just want to learn about a particular uh, industry or, or line of business. Um, and I was at one of these events uh, and it was a, what was it called? Um, I think it was called Women in Tech, actually. And um, I saw my soon-to-be boss uh, doing a talk on sales. And I saw how charismatic she was and the kind of uh, challenging questions that she was asking the audience. And I was, I was actually kind of taken aback. I was like, wow, this person's really, really good at sales. That's who I want to be when I grow up, basically. Um, so I chatted to her a bit afterwards, spoke about what we were doing. Um, then we just became friends, um, and at the point, the, the startup I was working at offered a really terrible entry-level salary. Um, I mean, it's it, it was like fine for the time being living in London, but uh, then I basically got incentivized by more money, um, and then eventually got poached uh, because she heard about the progress from other people in my team about what I'd, I'd been up to. How did you impress others in that team? Um, I think the, I think the first thing is actually grit. So, uh, this is very specific to, to salespeople. Um, and also one of the things I found is a lot of people fall into it as a career. It's not for everyone. It, it is really grueling and dealing with, um, rejection day in, day out. Like, uh, when you're, uh, a, a sales development representative, I remember days making 400 phone calls across a two and a half day period. I spoke to one person, they told me to F off. So like you need pretty thick skin to do it. Um, so I never really gave up. I didn't, I didn't phase me. Um, I think the other thing was I actually really enjoyed operations. I, uh, it's, it's something that I was fortunate enough to have more of a hands-on experience with. And so um, taking active interest in improving other areas of the business and then seeing like, okay, so, you know, that's the sales department, but how can I improve feedback for marketing messaging or how can I, um, you know, they keep talking about this particular pain point on phone calls or emails that I'm having. How can we fix that in customer success? And when you do that and, and your um, senior managers see that you're, you're doing that, uh, they'll ask you to be more involved in those sorts of activities in the future. And you start accruing a lot of different skills. And that's when you start progressing much, much faster than um, someone else who just sits there and does their nine to five. 
Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. In those days when you, you know, you didn't manage to speak to anyone, what was the longest period you went like that for? Was it something that I cared a lot? <laughs> it's, uh, I would say it happened. I think the worst period was probably a 10 day dry spell, which is you, you don't have any, um, meetings booked, which is basically what your, your KPIs are as a, as a junior salesperson is, is number of meetings booked. Um, and you have, a, you know, kind of conversations with people, but they weren't converting, um, which means they say like, oh yeah, like it's kind of interesting, but not for right now. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to, to dissect that. And so particularly in the early days, it's actually a process that we're going through at the moment and, and also kind of relates to um, a very early stage, just ideation is um okay is it the messaging is it the kind of questions that we're asking like we're, we're able to get on the phone with people but they're not booking a meeting so it's something that we're saying the way that we're representing ourselves is not connecting with our target audience like let's try all these different a b tests and figure out what is resonating and then try that um so yeah was it just phone calls you did or was there sort of email sequencing and that sort of thing yeah, so uh, an omni-channel presence, uh, so phone, video, uh, like voicemails, um, sending people gift cards, uh, sending people, um, I mean, uh, there's this amazing story of a company called ReachDesk uh, that I'm an investor in, um, and what they do is they help you engage with uh, potential prospects by sending personalized gifts, and so um, one of the people that they were trying to sell to was... Um, Chelsea Football Club and they found out that the I think it was the head of operations there was actually an Arsenal fan working at, at Chelsea and so the um, uh, the CEO of ReachDesk um, sent one Arsenal cufflink and a letter that said I'll bring the other it must be so tough being an Arsenal fan in Chelsea I'll bring the next one to our meeting and the guy called him back within 15 minutes of receiving the letter and, and booked a meeting straight away so creativity with your outreach is, is paramount I've heard of people um leaving fake wallets around with business cards in it and saying oh i think this is the, the managing director's wallet can you hand it back to him and then get calls back but that, i think that's an old wives tale but maybe <laughs> <laughs> what's the most creative thing you did do you remember do you have a... um what's the most creative thing i did um i think oh one i'm uh particularly proud of is uh, the head of uh, Fujitsu um, was doing a talk at a uh, conference and she was talking about how um, she helped people win a, a Guinness World Record together by using Fujitsu screens to uh, build a, a, a massive, like a, a, an even bigger TV. So they hold the record for the, the world's biggest TV or something like that for um, all of their clients. And um she uh she was standing outside and i was kind of chatting to her and i said wow that's you know that's amazing how however did you uh like come up with that and she um jokingly said um a packet of benadryl and a bottle of gin um so i sent her a care package that was a packet of benadryl and a bottle of gin and said it was so nice hopefully this will help you be more creative in future and uh and then yeah um she uh, she called me back oh that's great that's a great story <laughs> um Moving on to more sort of the entrepreneurship side of things, um, many of us in the audience today and anyone listening to the recording uh, want to start a business or have a look into starting a business, um, but don't know really where to start and what to do. And um, what would your advice be? Um, sure. So 
the very first one is th- being a student is one of the times in your life where you have just endless amounts of time like i i fully regret not spending more time um speaking with my peers about ideas like you know we, we chat about conversations and usual university things but we never spoke about problems or potential to solutions to them so the first is um just talk to people around you and see what problems they're facing the first place i'd start would probably be using something called the lean business canvas which is uh, for any business students i'm sure they've come across it before um, but it's probably one of the best ways to ideate that i found at least um, i won't go through all the steps now but um, if we begin with the problem first as to find the problem what's that one thing that you you really want to fix uh, i don't mean something huge like world hunger because that's you know near or impossible um, with the resources that you have but something that's affecting you personally are often the best problems that you can work on so um sometimes going into a career which is what i did unveils more problems um within a businesses that i could see and and want to fix and i was just finding one that i cared about like one i wanted to invest time in so for me for example uh when you're doing software sales and um, so i've done about probably two and a half thousand to three and a half thousand product demos that's half an hour on a web webex chatting with someone after that you have to spend 20 minutes filling in forms and it annoyed me so much that i was just like i need to fix this problem so i built the the current um product that i'm working on today uh the second step would be existing alternatives so um you know who else is working on that problem and um also for your your end users your your uh, customer persona like who else has that problem and then use the mum test you know user interviews are going to help you provide solid solid data to support the um, hypothesis that you're looking at and get those deeper insights um you know let you know if you're wasting time have you hit a dead end you know stop work on something different then the solution so scoping out your idea and, and build that kind of classic three-week scrappy mvp uh, a really good example of this uh, was the company DoorDash, which is the original Deliveroo. They're a bunch of students. Um, they were ordering some food one day and got chatting to the takeaway owner who was complaining about how hard it is to find delivery drivers. They went home, set up a website, literally put a phone number on there and, and the, the uh, company's menu, uh, sorry, the takeaway restaurant's menu. Someone called in and said, oh, like, you know, I want to order X, Y, Z. They went to the store, paid for it, went to the uh, person's house and then had a 10% markup. And that was the first time that it ever happened. And that took like 20 minutes setting up a website and a mobile phone number. Then this next thing is key metrics. You know, it's no use having all these ideas and solutions if you don't if you don't track them and pick something that's going to be your uh, what's referred to as your North Star metrics or the main qualification of success, whether that be uh, daily active users, like uh, how many orders someone's making. And that's the thing that um, I learned, which was a, a huge change during the ideation process. And these interviews is you really need to define what is a successful experiment and, and a failed experiment. Um, you know, like Netflix, for example, if you ever used a VPN and logged in from another country, they're running experiments on every country every single time. On the original days, they were doing something like uh, 10 tests every day that lasted two weeks to try and, um, you know, validate their experiments. Okay. And going on, you now have an idea, um, mm-hmm. but how do you know customers are actually going to want this product or how do you actually find that out that anyone actually wants this, this or if their product market fit? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, um, I, I, you know, I'm uh, 
going <laughs> to be a broken record here, but it's all kind of leads back to these user interviews. If you're continually talking to the market and potential users, um, like you, you should know if your product's going to be a fit or not. I made the mistake of doing this um, when I, I built my first startup, as I mentioned, where I was doing it behind closed doors and maybe talking to, to 10 people. It's just not enough. You should be in continuous contact with them at that all point. Um, and, you know, if you're, you know, building this MVP and you're not chatting to them, like who are you ultimately building it for? Like, are you fixing their problems? Um, and if they're saying, well, it's kind of good, it's not really, then, um, you know, you're never going to make something they want to use. You need something where they're going to be um, continually saying to you, okay, this iteration I'd probably use, or is that the difference between them and saying, okay, I want this next week. Like I will, I will pay you money for this service or solution. When you first started a business, how do you actually successfully get that product to market, get it out the door? How did mm -hmm. you do that with Comtura versus Hoist? Was it a different strategy? Or Sure. So th there are a number of different ways to um, successfully uh, deploy a product. Um, so again, uh, user interviews, the first one should be your users. Um, if they aren't, like what have you been doing with your time? The second is um, strike a deal with it, like a channel partner to resell your product for you. It's very easy to offer a revenue split um, and you basically deal with delivery and maintenance of the product and the support piece and they do with distribution and sales. Um, you can quite often find these kind of people uh, when you actually just LinkedIn is a, is a amazing networking tool and resource and it's quite easy to find them typically. Um, another one is uh, your referrals in your network. Uh, a lot of, so I, I mentor a, a, a few younger startups and some of them are students. Um, whenever I say that, they usually groan and they say, oh, you know, I've just, like, I'm at university, I don't have a network. Total rubbish. You all have parents. And even if you don't have parents, you're orphan, you will have friends who have parents who will know someone or, or something. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, you should only be friends with someone to, to get through to their network, but primarily there will be people in this lecture world, people who are watching this in future, who will be, who will know someone who will be able to help you um, either test, be like a beta tester, or know someone you should talk to about being a potential user. Um, I'm in the B2B world, which is a little bit different, um, but if you're looking for a B2C product, um, you can pay a influencer 50 quid and they will post on Instagram and you can quite often get users like that quite easy. Another really good one, again, for B2C products is there's Reddit, there's Facebook. There are all these different communities and forums where you can find, like if you're selling, um, I, I don't know, like uh, bike tires, you'll be able to find a forum that specializes in bikes and people who are very passionate about this subject. Those can be your first users and testers. You just have to do a bit of digging and, um, you know, ask the right kind of questions in those forums as well. Okay. And what specific challenges are there taking a product to market, especially in the tech industry? Um, so the thing is with tech, you, there's, there's a lot of blockers. Um, the first one is, it depends what kind of solution you're creating, but um, if you are touching a company's CRM system, which is basically its brain and where it stores all of its customer data, as you can imagine, they're really protective over it. So um, how you plug into it when like what you're taking in and out can really slow down conversations. I mean, for me, plugging in recently took me nearly two months to do one company. Um, same thing with compliance, like what data are you reading, especially the UK and, and EMEA, like GDPR is a, a very hot topic. Um, and that's just about protecting data privacy. So we have to be very careful about what information is communicating between us and them. Cybersecurity, like if we get hacked, can someone use that to get into their systems? And, um, you know, 
it's it can be very hard to um, to engage with uh, a, a tech company because of those potential blockers. The one plus side, tech like biz, other businesses typically have a lot of money, so it's not really a question of price. Like primarily, you know, some of them will be turning over hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So when you ask them to pay for you know fifty dollars a license, it's not that much of an ask. Whereas if you're in the B two C market and trying to sell like um, like Netflix, for example, that was like huge uproar when it went from seven ninety nine to nine ninety nine. That's uh, you don't encounter that in the tech space. <laughs> and moving on to more how you finance startups and finance your own businesses, what was your experience raising your first round, and when do you think you should do it timeline wise? Um, to be totally honest, uh, it was truly terrifying. I mean, I come from a sales background, so I was used to kind of being pitching in questions, but it's very different um, when it, when it's your thing and kind of your baby and you're, you're very uh, emotionally involved with it, uh, especially when you poured so much time and effort and, and money into it. Um, after your first 10 kind of pitches, it's, it's like anything, it gets a lot easier. Um, the format's pretty stereotypical, like pretty typical. Um, you have a 10, 20 minute pitch. They occasionally interrupt you to ask questions, um, which can sometimes throw you off, uh, but they usually wait to the end. Similar to the cold calling, funnily enough, um, it's ultimately a numbers game and you get a lot of rejection. Um, but what you want to aim for, particularly with fundraising, is just getting a feedback. So asking a really good question is what was my weakest slide and why? If they reject you, they don't often do that, but you should always be looking to improve. I think I went through maybe a hundred different iterations of my pitch deck. Um, one important thing that I, I want to urge um, you all to realize is like investors are not there to validate your idea. Most of the time they have no idea what they're talking about, the problems that you're trying to solve. It is very rare that you have like a specialized investor that's an expert in the field. Um, so don't worry about it if they say, no, I'm not interested. Like we, we do, um, we, we, our system relies on, on call recording like we're being recorded right now um, and I had one guy that said oh there's no one's ever going to want a sales conversation recorded ever and then said no and I literally emailed him afterwards saying that about 95% of conversations are now recorded so that we can improve training but there you go um, the other thing you mentioned was the the timing and the when should you do this um, it really depends and there's no perfect answer for this. Uh, for me, it was when I wanted my two technical co-founders to leave their job and go on it full-time. I was full-time on it by myself for about, uh, I mean, the whole journey took me six or seven months until I found them, uh, but another two months until they got full-time. I basically wanted to increase the speed of deployment so that we could maintain pace with our competitors. And I saw that the market was moving away for us and was in a position because timing is so crucial for startups like if you miss time stuff um for example um like if, if netflix had been 10 years earlier uh and it was you know the internet wasn't ready to um, be a streaming service or um you know everyone had vcrs in their homes and no one owned a computer it would have failed straight away um so i have saw some things moving around and i thought it would um they our competitors would consume too much of the market um and the uh, a lot of our solution relies on transcription and so the quality of transcription was at a good enough state where our, where our product would work properly um so that's a really difficult one for me to answer but um i would recommend doing it primarily when you have at least uh one user who has agreed to um co-develop your solution with you and if it's a b2c product you have at least 100 people using it and daily active users not monthly acting users 
Okay, I've got a few follow-up questions on that. Sure. Um, firstly, really on the investment side of things, you said you know investors can't validate your product or a business. Mm-hmm. Would you say there's a sort of catch side to that? So, say you raise a you know a very big round, you weren't expecting to. Would you say that, and you know now you feel like your product's validated? Would you also say that you know that doesn't mean you're going to be successful? Um, like absolutely not. Like you, uh, the stats in the UK are. Um, about I think it's ninety percent uh, fail um, before they get to their first fundraising round, and then after that it's about fifty percent. So even even with the uh, the money that you have, and it gets your survival rate gets higher with each round that you do. But um, you know we've we've got an MVP, we've raised three hundred and fifty k, and you know if we don't get any customers between then and now, I can't pay my salaries, I can't pay my employees' salaries. There's no guarantee it's going to survive. Um, there's uh, the next stage, yeah, is, is seed round, um, which you typically aim to raise in the SaaS space, so software as a service. Uh, this magical kind of 10K MRR is when you should start looking to raise your next round. So that's only a turnover of 100,000 a year um, when you're trying to raise, you know, half a million and then scale from there. And what can um, happens quite a lot is, is you have something called a, a Series A graveyard. So your Series A is when um, you about a million ARR, so turning over eighty-four thousand or sorry, eighty-three thousand three hundred thirty-three uh, dollars per month, um, and there is no guarantee that you have found your product market fit. You've only actually found it past that because what investors are looking for there is um, okay. This company's you know it's adding a few users, but are the um, previous ones um, uh, like renewing? And can I use the data that they've collected to accurately predict whether a user will continue being a user in five years and then also increase the expansion revenue? So they're like a number of dollars spent. And um, in uh, a book called um, Hooked, uh, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, um, they talk about this concept of B2C is the same, is the viral lifetime cycle. So Facebook broke pretty much every record um, of the viral lifetime cycle, which is um, the the amount of time that someone takes uh, before they talk about your product to someone else. And Facebook were getting, I think it was like three every half day. So there'd be one person would say, have you used Facebook? Three times in every six hours, basically. Um, and so they could explode. If you don't reach either of those kind of critical mass points, either, you know, through paying customers, because, you know, $100,000, I have a team of six, that's not even close to the amount I spend on salaries. And it's the same with the, the users that, that Facebook was earning from ad revenue. Again, if you don't have that viral lifetime cycle and, and those um, user acquisitions per day and people staying there, then you're, you're going to die. So you can have a lot of false starts, even when you read about these companies getting to Series A and raising, you know, five, 10 million rounds, no guarantees whatsoever. Okay, and sort of going back to the seed round specifically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that sort of the SaaS space that's around ten thousand MRR. Mm-hmm. What kind of amount of money would you be expecting to raise? Five hundred k, six hundred k, or what sort of level? Um, sure. So uh, there's a couple of different factors. Um, funnily enough, this could is like literally the best time to be a founder. Um, so if you're going to do it, I'll do it in the current funding environment. Uh, there's a huge amount of liquidation in the market and day by day, the rounds are just getting sillier and sillier and sillier. Um, and it's the same for valuations. Um, so the things that affect your valuation are, uh, first is team, um, you know, like how strong is the management team? Um, the second is, 
what's your month on month growth rate? Like if you add a, a thousand that, you know, you signed a deal and it's a thousand dollars a month and then uh, you get another thousand dollars next month, you're growing by a hundred percent that, that month. And then, you know, how long can you maintain that, that growth trajectory? Um, and investors want to see this kind of classic Nike tick of you just, um, you know, same amount of resource, but your traction just goes up and up. Um, if you can demonstrate uh, like 30% is about the base mark for your seed round, excuse me. Um, I think in today's environment, you should easily be able to raise like a million, one and a half million pounds at seed round. Um, the valuation is kind of, you know, you know, that's the art of a founder, right? And, and those negotiations. Um, the way that I went about it personally is uh, I paid for a subscription of a, a solution called Crunchbase, which basically tracks all the startup funding environments. Um, I looked at companies in our space, similar sort of founding teams, saw what their rounds were, and then um, said, okay, you know, they, these guys had, uh, you know, got these kinds of valuations. I think we're a little bit better because of X and Y, like we've got a better team or um, our user base is, is larger. So I'm going to add on another to five, 10% to that, to that valuation. But um, if I was going to give a firm number, it should be easy to be able to raise about a million pounds for a seed round these days in the UK. <clears throat> well, so yeah, that's a sizable amount of money uh, to, mm. to, to last on. Um, and in terms of Comterra, where do you think you stand? How far away from a seed round? What sort of what's your timeline? Sure. So um, we've already been offered um, an, a million pounds contributed, and that's from our lead investor of our current round. Um, and we think that we're going to try and raise between three and a half to four and a half million um, for our seed round, which is, to be honest, isn't not very typical. Um, I think that what we're building uh has a lot more scope and scale than a lot of uh solutions on the market what our competitors offer um and i think the valuation could be anything from uh i mean 15 to, to 20 million which is is a typical series a round but again like the market is not where he, it was a year ago or two years ago um so i'm going to shoot for the moon basically <laughs> um one thing that's really important which again i I wish I'd been told and had some really good advice about um, was you don't need to fundraise, right? There's this actually in the past six months. Um, so MailChimp got sold, totally bootstrap company. They grew really slowly. Well, let's say <clears throat> slowly in comparison to like other startups that were funded, but the founders retained a hundred percent control and they just sold for, I can't remember, it was, it was like 6 billion. Um, then you had uh, Basecamp who had been going for 20 or 30 years. No, sorry, I'm, I'm lying, uh, 10 years. <laughs> and, um, and again, they're turning over uh, like uh, tens of millions and they are probably valued like well over a billion dollars. And again, never taken a round of funding. Um, whenever you take that funding, you're diluting your your paycheck at the end of the day and more recently there are these um kind of debt equity companies called uh like pipe.com is a really good one or we are uncapped and what these guys will do is if you're a uh, subscription-based solution and you have annual contracts they're typically only build quarterly but what they'll do is they can buy out all of your contracts and give you let's say the, the value so that 100k on that day you can reinvest it into hiring your team or you know paying for new solutions or whatever it is and then you pay them back at the end of the year with a further six percent i've effectively done like a mini round without compromising um, and i've read about a number of companies that actually do this process every six months so they're continually um, doing this this payback 
period without sacrificing any equity. Uh, for me personally, I think I'm actually going to do this and see how far I can get up to Series B. Series B is a little bit different because these companies will, won't lend you anything past about, like I think it's two, two to five million um, pounds. Um, and a Series B is when you start you know, doing silly numbers like 30 to 50 million. And that's a wrap for this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, do make sure to leave us a rating on the platform you are listening on. For updates about our events, do check out our website or our Facebook page. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in our next episode.